Welcome to the Talking Herd Podcast, Episode 6, October 12th, 2016. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Talking Herd Podcast. Uh, six episodes. Sorry, missed you last week. It's kind of one of the downsides of having jobs, multiple jobs, uh, kids, a uh, little bit of busy schedule, but we're back this week. I'm not sure how much we wanted to be back after the showing in Texas this week. Uh, Marshall, of course, falls 38-21 to North Texas. Uh, I kind of want to say it was surprising, but like I just told you off air, I told somebody Saturday afternoon I had a bad feeling about that game. Uh not sure what it was. We really haven't played where I thought we were this year, and it's always tough going to Texas, and I think North Texas is much improved from last year, and their first few games, they did some things right, and then they came out against us, and we just didn't have it down in Texas. The North Texas quarterback, um, it reminds me a little bit, not completely on skill level, but it reminds me a little bit of Russell Wilson. He's not a classically sized quarterback. But he is effective, and as he matures and gets experience, provided he stays healthy, I look for him to do some really good things with North Texas. Now, if they, the question is going to be, can they surround him with uh, the right amount of talent to elevate their program? Uh, Texas is a talent-rich state, so they should be able to find the talent to do that, but uh, that remains to be seen. Um, I think North Texas was an improved football team, uh, I can't express how disappointing it was to watch the way Marshall performed. Um, the the pig game was puzzling from the standpoint of the play calling, especially the first half. The North Texas game, um, it our offense just seemed non-existent. Yeah, two hundred and seventy-one total yards, which is borderline. Uh, embarrassing for Marshall given our offensive history, but the real embarrassing stat I think we had 13 rushing yards on 28 attempts. That's anemic at best. Yeah, honestly, going into this year, with I felt like we had some depth at running back. Uh, we discussed off air just a second ago how the offensive line kind of we thought it would take him time to gel, but that's always been kind of one of our stronger points under Coach Mirabal. And uh, rushed for 13 yards on 28 carries. Granted, Chase took several sacks he maybe shouldn't have, but still that's uh, a pretty embarrassing number. If you look at the box score, uh, Keon had 14 carries for 33 yards, and Anthony Anderson had six carries for seven yards. So we had 40 yards rushing on 20 carries by our running backs, which just – I don't know what to say to that. You, you, don't, win, you yeah. don't win football games when you rush for those amounts. Um, it, it's difficult when you rush for that low of a uh, yard per carry average – to even have a passing game. Um, and I honestly don't know what the answers are. I don't know if it's um, personnel, if it's scheme on the offensive line, if it's a combination of both. It's it's really hard to tell and uh, uh, very puzzling from a fan standpoint. We certainly don't know the inner workings of uh, what goes on day-to-day with the coaching. Um, chemistry is always something that uh, is kind of nebulous and difficult to nail down. So um, you have to imagine the coaches are putting uh, who they think are the five best guys as a unit, but they're certainly not performing up to where we thought they were going to perform this year. 
And as bad as the running game was, the passing game really wasn't much better. Chase is uh, 20-42, so he completed less than 50% of his passes. And honestly, I don't even think he looked that good. He missed a lot of passes. Uh, a lot of guys opened the middle uh, and completely sailed the ball on him. I don't know what it is. I felt like uh, you can't really judge Morgan State. And then he took the concussion apparently early in the Akron game. But all year, whether it's that concussion or what, he's just completely looked off. He looked To me, he stares down his receivers more than he did last year. He seems to be in a really bad sophomore slump. Hasn't, take that, hasn't taken that progression that we thought he might come into this year that you kind of want to see that sophomore take after a year starting as a freshman. I know there's a lot of people questioning whether the lack of uh, quarterback coach on the staff that's had a history of coaching quarterbacks, Coach Legs always coached tight ends or offensive line, that's hurting him. But I'm not sure it's an issue with mechanics as it is anything else with Chase that a quarterback coach would help. I think it's mechanics, but it's mechanics derived from uh, what I think is a, a he's in a bad mental place. I think his mental clock right now, instead of 1,001, 1,002, is 1-2, get rid of it. Um, his mechanics looked poor on Saturday. He short-stepped a lot of throws. And when he wasn't short-stepping, he was throwing off his back foot. Most of his air-mailed passes were off of his back foot. Um, most of his short hops were him not stepping into passes. Um very few passes that he threw Saturday look like the prototypical drop back, set, step no in time. and throw. He just he did not look comfortable in the pocket at all. And whether that's a carryover again from what you said uh, with regard to the the concussion, uh, if it's lack of confidence in the offensive line, a combination of those two plus a couple of other things, uh, hard to say, but uh, definitely looks off. And with his struggles, uh, you think we would be in a position with uh, as a coaching staff that we could maybe do a little uh, few things differently offensively from a scheme point of view that would help a quarterback out that's struggling. But it seems like it's uh, that typical Bill Leg. We're going to do what we do. Uh, very limited adjustments game to game. Very limited adjustments based on uh, what the defense likes to do. We go in and try to force our game plan into that game, whether it fits. Sometimes you kind of wonder if that's a square peg in a round hole. Uh, you watch a lot of college football games. I sat and watched many games Saturday, and it's kind of disheartening. I don't know if that's the right word to see what some of these teams are doing offensively and some of the creativity out there and listen to people talk about how they adjust their offense uh, weekly and uh, throw in wrinkles here and there. We just don't seem to do that. We just kind of – we're going to go out and do this and hope it works. Kind of, kind of seems like our MO on offense. I think in, a, in, in an effort, and I'm guessing this probably occurred about the time that uh, Leg first came in and, and um, really got his hands on um, Cato, A.J. Uh, a. Graham. When, when he first got here and had those two guys, I got the suspicion that he was trying to simplify the offense to the point of they didn't have they, they were just reacting as opposed to doing a lot of reading. And I think we've broken at least with our wide receivers and our route running, it seems like we've broken the field up into segments and our wide receivers stay within those segments quite a bit. They don't stray too often. And so we've got, you know, our quarterbacks looking at 
right segment, right center, left center, left. And that's kind of it. We don't see too much crossing in the middle of the field. As a consequence, I mean, defenses can certainly pick up on that and game plan for that fairly easy, especially if they're zone defenses. Um, so th that seems to be a troubling aspect, and it seems like we're kind of back in that mold right now with Litton since he's such a still a young quarterback and we're trying to get him, get him comfortable back there. We're, we're definitely not hard to game plan for. Um, we seem to have the attitude of we're, we're going to win only if we do what we do well. And we can't vary off of that. We're just going to keep doing what we do as opposed to introducing wrinkles. Um, it's a little, little frustrating from a fan standpoint. Yeah, and kind of a little bit going back to what you were saying, when Cato was young, it seemed like a lot of the times on offense we would go with a really quick-paced offense, which I think, I know this is just pure speculation on my part, uh, really put Cato in a position where he didn't overthink things. It was more of a reaction like you were just talking about. Uh, kind of, I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen that with Chase. Pick up the tempo, let him go out there and just play instead of trying to think about everything he does uh, and maybe make mistakes that way. And, and something you just said reminded me of kind of the broader point I was wanting to get to. Young quarterbacks, especially playing in a system where they're mostly pocket passing, Young quarterbacks do not typically find comfort in that. Th that mental clock is running way too fast. They feel the pocket collapsing when maybe it isn't collapsing. And so most young quarterbacks seem to have more success when you get the pocket moving a little bit, rolling guys out, right-handed quarterback, kind of flushing him to the right more often, letting, letting him get out there, get his feet set, square his shoulders, find a target and release. We don't seem to have that in our repertoire too often. I think I've seen it maybe a couple times this year. I think Litton would benefit from that. I think that would start instilling some confidence in him because, as we both know, we both played sports You know, growing up. Confidence is a big part of playing sports and being successful. The moment you lose that confidence, it doesn't matter what you've accomplished. When you lose your confidence, you become a vulnerable and a, just a typical athlete until you get that edge back. I mean, you want a good example. Tiger Woods withdraws this week. It's all based on his mental state. He doesn't want to go out there right now and be embarrassed on the golf course, according to his own standards. When he gets his game to the point where he thinks he can whip the field, we'll see him again, praying that he doesn't get injured again. But same thing with, with these guys. I think, you know, we got to find some way for Litton to be successful if we can't find a way for him to be successful and do it very quickly, this is going to continue to be a painful season to watch. And my concern about that, well, I completely agree with you. We have two home games against two horrendous teams. I feel like we're going to come out and do the same thing. We're not going to do anything that we sat here and discussed or change anything up. And I worry about a false sense of improvement on the coach's part if we come out and the offense looks a little bit better against Florida Atlantic and then good against Charlotte. And when we go to Southern Miss, that doesn't mean we're necessarily better or Chase is in a position where he's comfortable in the offense. That means we played two really bad teams. Uh, so hopefully, uh, like I said, those coaches have been around forever. Doc, Coach Legg, most of the offensive staff, they're aware of that. And that's something that we see, like, wow, we can use these two games to build confidence Let's not get over to confident that we've solved maybe the offensive issues going to Southern Miss. 
We definitely hope to see improvement over the course of the next couple of weeks, you know, praying for wins, of course. But um, your point about getting a, a false sense of uh, uh, improvement based on our competition, that's certainly uh, something we got to be aware of. And uh, hopefully the team, if they do experience success against these teams, they don't let that go to their head and, and think that they, well, we figured this out now. No, you, you've got to keep pushing. you got to keep improving. Something else that we saw Saturday that I, I know we've discussed on here it drives us both nuts. Uh, at this point, we should probably quit letting it drive us nuts because that's what Doc's going to do. But fourth downs, again, there was three that kind of stand out in my mind. Uh, the fourth and 13 in the first half on the North Texas 45 is kind of a toss-up. I can see where maybe you would punt in that situation. Uh, but there was a couple others. Uh, we had a Fourth and five on the North Texas 41. I feel like that situation, fourth and five, you kind of need, I mean, that's in no man's land. And that's the one I believe that it was, we had a 16 yard punt. So we did absolutely nothing. Right. It was, we should have gone for it. And then the one that most people probably would think we're crazy for that I think we should have gone for, uh, we had a fourth and two on the North Texas 41. That's another one where we should have gone for it. But there was one more where we had a fourth and one in our own territory. And people will say you should never go for it in your own territory. And it was like our own 30, which I know gives them a 30-yard. But you should be able to convert fourth and one 70, 75% of the time. And honestly, one of the other arguments I've seen on message boards and stuff uh, with all these different is uh, with our defense being so bad that we shouldn't put them in a bad position with bad field position. My thought is if your defense is bad, it doesn't matter where the other team's going to start. They're going to move the ball. Field position doesn't matter if you can't hold them to three and outs. And we've kind of struggled doing that this year on defense. So I think that should give you more incentive as a coach to try to get that first down and keep your offense on field, get a spark going offensively, uh, not just give the ball back to the other team who seems to be moving the ball a little bit better than we are. If your defense is sketchy, and at times our defense is fairly sketchy, having offensive opportunities becomes as important as whatever your defense is doing. As you said, if they're giving up yardage and they're giving up points, then putting your defense in a bad position, there's no bad position. There's no good position that you can put them in. Whether you pin the offense on the five or you let them start on your 10, they're going to score. It's almost an inevitability. So, uh, Going for it on fourth down, trying to keep the ball in our possession, at least gives us a better chance. Um, we're both a bit on the riverboat gambling side of things. If we were in coaching, I'm sure we would catch a lot of criticism for the amount of times that we go for it on fourth down. But uh, um, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think there, there have been at least a solid – eight to 12 opportunities already in the season for us to go for it. And with the exception of probably the second half of the pit game, we punted almost every time and we've netted nothing for it. And I mean, it's not just riverboat game with the statistics for the most part, back it up. I mean, I pulled those statistics, uh, the percentage that you're going to score from starting on the opponent's 45. If we go for it there, the defense starts on their own five, that 40 yard difference isn't a huge difference based on how often they're going to score average points from that field position. And once you factor in the fact that you're likely not going to score points on defense, but if you go for it and keep your drive going, then you will score points. 
It, it really shows you, I uh, kind of broke it down on one of the message boards um, based on 2012 stats, and I, I'm probably going to write a program that will pull last year's play-by-play -play for all of Division One college football and this year's too, just to kind of elaborate further. Statistically, you're more inclined that you should go for it because, like I said, if you have the ball, you can score more easily than expecting to have a pick six or a fumble recovery or pinning them deep and getting a safety. And I just, Doc's got that old school mindset of we're going to punt, play defense, and hopefully flip the field position. But when your defense is sketchy, one 30-yard play, they break up the middle or one receiver getting open, the field position's flipped in their favor. And that's something we've been vulnerable to this year, which makes it even more crazy to me that we're punting as much as we are in those situations. I agree. And when you look at coaching philosophy from the standpoint of uh, conservative versus crazy um, or, or whatever adjective you want to use, when you have a conservative coach, and, and this is true of almost all team sports, any kind of, the, the team tends to become a reflection of the coaching philosophy. So the criticism of the so-called crazy coaches, the gambling coaches, is you've got undisciplined players. And yes, they're going to uh, create a lot of uh, explosive plays, a lot of crazy plays, but they're also going to do some boneheaded things from time to time. Okay, that's one criticism. Go to the other side of the spectrum. Conservative coaches. Well, to be a to have a conservative mindset and to, and to succeed in that, you have to have talented players and you have to have disciplined players. And when you don't have those two things, I think you end up with a team that gets really tight because then they're looking at the coaches and going, we don't want to screw up because the conservative mindset is we're going to play solid defense. We're going to punt in the appropriate situations according to the conservative textbook. And when we screw that up, then the pressure kind of mounts. It gets a little bit tighter, a little bit tighter. And I think we are a tight football team right now. There, I don't see any looseness. Um, teams of the past, you know, pregame, you'd kind of see them kind of loosey-goosey and everything. These guys, they look businesslike, but I think they're super tight right now, and I think that's a reflection of the coaching staff to at least some degree. And, and as you discussed, uh, there's definitely kind of a confidence issue there, it appears, with Chase. And if your coach is not trusting your offense on fourth and two, fourth and one, and the opponent's uh, side of the field, that's got to just bring that confidence down. I mean, as an offensive player, it's got to frustrate you, too, that your coaching staff apparently doesn't trust that you can get that one or two yards or even five yards in the more extreme cases. So that's another thing. When you're struggling with confidence, going for it in that situation is not a bad decision. It's statistically a good decision, but it's also you got to factor in maybe if we go for it here and we can get it, that'll breathe a little life, a little confidence into my offense for the rest of this game and going forward breathe a little confidence into the offense and also start getting the defense thinking a little bit. Oh, Marshall's finally kind of cut through their shell a little bit. Finding answers to any of these problems for us is, you know, we're, we're sort of, um, as fans, kind of reaching, trying to solve, you know, figure out the, the actual issues and find solutions. But I'm at kind of a loss to, to understand why we are where we are. I, I've got a couple of kind of loose theories, but um, nothing that's provable. And it's fairly frustrating.
Yeah, frustrating is a good word. I, I think we all kind of knew there was a chance. Uh, Louisville Pitt on the schedule this year, coming out of non-conference playing two and two would have been probably most people's guess. Obviously, the Akron loss threw people off, and then this loss this week. This was a really bad team last year. I think we beat them by seventeen at Jonesy Edwards, and then the next week, Portland State beat them sixty-six to seven, and they fired their coach right after that game. Uh, I, I'm really at a loss. Uh, I don't know if frustrated is the right word. I think I told you and I've shared with others at this point, I don't know if it's indifference with Coach Leg. I, I feel like our offense could be much better. We could be doing a lot more things. Uh, and honestly, we bring somebody else in, there's no guarantee that we're going to have success on offense. So that's a risk that we would have to judge uh, if we would make that decision, if we keep stumbling. Like, uh, I mean, our schedule's not going to be easy. We have three games where we're probably going to be underdogs, uh, Southern Miss, Middle Tennessee, and Western Kentucky. Uh, Old Dominion looks a little bit better this year and going on the road again and conference play is always tough. I'm just like, I'm at a loss with what we can do to save this season and what we need to do going forward for the program. A lot of fingers get pointed at, at Bill Lagg. Right, rightfully so, because he's the offensive coordinator. He's at least to a degree running some form of offense that Doc approves. Um, there's at least some fairly consistent debate as to whether Doc is involved on the offense and defensive side of the ball. Doc kind of projects the image of being more of a manager of people as opposed to being into the weeds on some stuff. I know uh, especially some of the more recently acclaimed offensive coordinators that become elevated uh, head coaching positions at other places, whatever their role as a coordinator, they tend to maintain at least a a foot in that that, uh, area. Um, Larry Fedora down at UNC, I'm sure he's still involved in that offense to a degree uh, despite having his own offensive coordinator. Here with Doc, I'm not sure that's true, but he at least has some approval over how the offense is structured, leaving the details to leg. That combination of things, I think, is what's really frustrating the fan base right now because this is a fan base that you're used to a, an explosive offense. Uh, it's taken on different forms over the years. We're both old enough to remember the Tony Peterson, Carl Fetter, Tony Peterson, John Gregory days, where we were throwing the ball all over the lot. The offense was crazy. Not much defense was played. Under Donham, we got a little bit more conservative. Pruitt came in, we got a little bit less conservative. That's the kind of offenses we're used to. We're not used to where, and one of the common criticisms is fans can predict what the plays are going to be, you know, what plays are coming based on how we're lined up. I, I don't know if that's true. I, I think you'd have to be a pretty special uh, football eye to be able to do that. I certainly that, – that's not even not, not even the way I watch a football game. I'm watching for results. I'm typically not watching analytically. I'm, I'm watching as a fan. But even watching it as a fan, we seem to be very regimented. It's this – it's maybe a couple variations, and, and that's it. Um, I, 
I'm not confident Doc will push for any changes. I think that's maybe going to have to be some external pressure put on him. Uh, I, I don't get the sense that Leg himself sees the need for changes. And unless Doc directs him to actually do some internal changing on his uh, on his schemes, I, I don't know we're going to see a whole lot over the rest of the season. I, I, I'm guessing they're putting all the eggs in. These guys will improve. That's how we're going to improve as opposed to trying to out-scheme folks. And I think something else that's kind of uh, lost in the mix of discussion is people seem to have a visionist version of history. Like our offenses under Pruitt were really good, but we weren't really doing anything that crazy. We, I mean, we were three receivers, a back and a tight end most of the time, 50-50 run to pass other than Byron Senior. We just happened to have two first-round NFL quarterbacks and uh, several other NFL players on offense. I mean, playing in a bad – the Mac was bad then. And I don't think we did anything super crazy. I think we lined up kind of like we try to do now. We beat teams – because we are better than them talent-wise, not necessarily scheme-wise. And obviously there's no way to go back and determine whether that's the case, and it isn't now. But I, I think that's a little bit unfair to Doc and Leg too. People tend to remember that time as we were throwing it all over the field. We were unstoppable as team. We struggled a lot of times with some bad Mac team back in those days. If you go look at the schedule, I mean, we beat Eastern Michigan, who was horrendous by three up there, lost to Akron a couple of times, a couple of close games with Kent. Uh, lost to Bowling Green, obviously, in 98 and a couple of years later. So I think it's a little bit unfair to Doc and uh, Leg and the rest of the coaching staff and the players that people tend to think that we were some dominant force for a decade when really we were a score here or there in a season from instead of 12-1 and one, being 9-3, and 8-4. and four. Uh, and, and people forget in 97, their first year in the MAC, it actually took a late season – victory by Toledo over Miami to even give us the East Division title and the shot to play Toledo in the championship game. Um, if uh, if I recall correctly, Toledo either scored a two-point conversion or they stopped a two-point conversion on the final play to get the win. That two-point conversion goes the other way for Miami. We're not even talking about a bowl game against Ole Miss in the in the Silver Dome in 97. Uh, so you're right, there there were a lot of close calls that if they had went against us, we're maybe talking about different types of uh, uh, championship history. Uh, and 98 was another example. We beat Miami, lost later in the year to Bowling Green, but won the East because we had to have a head tiebreaker. But that year, looking at the schedule, we won by three, at Eastern Michigan, won by seven at Ohio. Blocked a field goal against Wofford. Yeah. Lucky charms. I mean, us out. Either Ohio or Eastern Michigan go the other way, and we don't win the MAC that year. 99, uh, we really didn't have any close games. 2000, obviously, we lost the first two conference games at Toledo and Western Michigan. And then late in the year, a three-point win at Akron, a seven-point one at Bowling Green. Either one of those go the other way. We don't play in the conference game. So it's a lot of... Well, Pruitt won these championships, and obviously you can't take that away from him, but we weren't beating these teams in the MAC by 30. We were a score here or there from maybe having two MAC championships instead of. And the reason to, to, to point that out is, is actually to illustrate just how difficult it is to run the table 
from top to bottom on your schedule. I think if you seriously polled most college football coaches, they're going to tell you they're going to get a total team effort, both sides of the ball, maybe two times a year. If they're lucky, they'll get three. But most of the time, they'll get two great efforts. The rest of the time, you're going to get a great effort on one side of the ball or maybe the opposite side of the ball. Not everything's going to be working, you know, uh, uh, fist and glove, and you're going to struggle. That's, you know, our history certainly reflects that. Why why should we have struggled with Wofford? Why should it have taken a blocked field goal to beat a 1AA team in our own stadium? Well, it, there's a number of reasons, mostly because you got a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old kids that are different levels of maturity, different levels of focus, you know, that those guys read, at least back then, read news clippings, I'm sure, and they probably had the feeling of, well, this is Wofford, we can coast. Well, they found out they couldn't coast. The rest of that season, we pretty much, you know, blasted who we played, but up to that point, it took a game like that to kind of convince them. Luckily, we got through that. But it's just a good illustration of how difficult it is to run the table in college football. To circle that back around the current situation, I think you and I are probably a little bit more apt to give Doc, Leg, Heater, and those guys more benefit of the doubt than the average fan just because I, th- I think we truly understand how difficult their jobs are. Um, with that said, throw us a bone. Give us a wrinkle. Give, give us a couple <laughs> of things every game that, you know, even if it's not really different, if it just looks different, give us some hope. That you know, it's window dressing. I, I admit that it's window dressing, but give it to us. We need it. It's raw meat, and we need it. We need to feast on it for a, a bit. And, and honestly, if we were to go five and seven this year, I think that would put Doc around thirty-eight and fifteen over the last four years. Uh, there's not many coaches in football that are better than that. And we have to also recognize that North Texas's coaches are paid a lot of money. Their players are given scholarships too. It's not like we're playing some high school teams. I mean, there's quality on their team. There's quality coaches on their staff. Sometimes you're not going to win all of them. Your expectations say hey, we're going to need to win the conference every year with the understanding that that's just not logical at all to expect. It's the difference between if you take out the traditional 10 to 15 programs that more or less every year dominate the top of all of the polls and all of the ratings. All the teams that fall between 15 or 20 and all the way down to 128 or whatever number we're at now, the difference between those teams often is only a handful of players. The talent level across the board is actually pretty high right now. Much of it is undisciplined, and that's where the coaching kind of becomes, you know, a bit of a key. But the... That's the reason a, a North Texas can be a surprise. Uh, you know, as we noted earlier, they're in a talent-rich state. There's absolutely no reason in the world why they can't have field a competitive team every year. Well, they probably have had competitive athletes over the years. It's just a question of whether their coaching staff can pull them together properly. And some coaches succeed in one place and go another place and – don't have any success. I fully expected uh, McCarney, having had success at Iowa State, to go to North Texas and actually be pretty good. And that failed miserably. Um, 
that stuff, you know, it's it's hard to explain, or at least hard to understand. Maybe the explanation's easy, but understanding it's more more difficult. And on the flip side, Chris Peterson was a great coach at Boise. He's got Washington top five in the nation. I don't, I'm not sure anybody saw that coming that quickly. It's not that just, quickly. It, it, it's a crapshoot uh, getting to that. But, yeah, I mean, outside of your Alabamas, your Ohio States, I mean, even Michigan went out with Brady Hoke and fell back to the point where they were borderline average, maybe slightly above average. College football cyclical. Uh, we've seen it since the beginning of college football. We'll continue to see it. Uh, I'm not saying you should be happy if we finish with four or five wins this year. Absolutely. I'll be disheartened and sad myself. But at the same time, looking at what Doc has done here the past three years, uh, bringing the program back from the Snyder years when we were perennial, a five, four win team, we would have been happy just winning six to go to a bowl. If Doc can throw together 10 win seasons every few years, I'm not sure we can do better than expect better than that with the resources we have available to put into the program compared to um, the rest of FBS or middle of the road at best in the group of five, uh, middle of the road in the conference, winning 10 games three out of four years with that type of financial support. Uh, I hate to say that's as good as you can expect, but it almost really is. Well, and, and this always seems to circle back to the conversation of conference affiliation, expansion, contraction, membership changes. Should Marshall be looking to another conference? Should we be looking at changing the membership of the current conference? I think there's a general recognition that Conference USA as it sits is a fairly mediocre conference. Um, in some years, it's going to be a decent to high level among the G5. And some years, it's going to be closer to traditional Sunbelt status. Um, there's nothing we can do to change that. We have to play the cards that we're dealt. You mentioned the financial issues. We're always going to have financial issues. That that there There is... No, virtually no scenario that you can think of where Marshall will be self-sufficient in any way that it can compete consistently, even with the bottom of the P5, much less looking at uh, joining another conference, paying all the exit fees and all the uh, the legal wrangling that goes on with, with those kinds of switches. So given what we have to face, we're actually competing fairly well. And given how college football sort of positioned itself, it's going to be easier for Marshall to get to that um, uh, access bowl slot from Conference USA as it is joining a bigger conference, um, the AAC in particular. Um, I, I, I can't, again, envision any scenario where we have enough funding and enough resources to compete consistently, especially in all sports in AAC. Um, that's not to say that Conference USA is an ideal conference. It certainly isn't. There's some dead weight in this conference in the big sports. Uh, the minor sports people tend not to care about, unfortunately, but in the big sports, there's dead weight. The Florida schools, at least to date, haven't pulled their own weight. I don't know that they can pull their own weight. 
yes, you know, what FAU's got 50,000 students and how many of them care about their own program. They're probably like a lot of folks in this state. They look at the state schools first. It's Florida, Florida State, and if you're from maybe Coral Gables, you're you're a Miami fan. After that, it sort of you know shakes out. Um, given the resources we have and the uh, unideal situation we have with the conference, this is probably, unfortunately, what we have to deal with on a cyclical basis. We're going to have good years. We're going to have some mediocre years. If we're going to stay away from the terrible years, that'll be that'll probably be the uh, the key to you know at least sustaining the fan base. That's always the one thing that concerns me because losing and weather tend to really hurt our attendance, and when you get them in combination, it it really makes well, sure. like this weekend, ninety percent chance of rain last I saw on Saturday. I wish you hadn't told me that. I, I, I haven't looked at the weather specifically for that reason. Hey, it's, it's only sixty percent out for Charlotte, so that's an improvement, right? It, it just it never fails. Home weekend, it's going to rain or it's going to be hundred degrees, and it's homecoming. You, know, you expect a, a good crowd for homecoming, and we're getting more rain. It, yeah. uh, we can't win for losing. I saw somebody said they felt confident, uh, twenty five thousand for homecoming. And I said if it rains and pours all day, it might be. 25,000 tailgating, but it'll be 15,000 in the game. People will just go home before kickoff. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully the weather changes. We have a, we're due a nice, beautiful fall home game. As we both know, we both followed sports for a long time. One of the, and, and this actually popped up on the message, on a message board in the last two weeks, the most overused phrase in sports. Being due is one of those things. We are certainly do in the sense that we all understand it. Um, are we are are we going to have the weather gods smile on us at any point in the near future? Lord, I hope. Uh, I'm I'm tired of either roasting or being, you know, waterlogged by the time a game is over. Uh, it would be nice to go to a game that kick, kicks off at about seventy seventy five and ends at about sixty sixty five. And I'm dry as a bone, and we win. I don't know <laughs> when we can ever expect that again, but uh, I, I can at least dream a little bit. Circling back to North Texas, uh, we gave up 38 points to a true freshman quarterback who was making his third or fourth start because I know they started the year with an Alabama transfer and gradually worked Mason Fine in until he completely took over. Gave up. 458 total yards on 82 plays. So 5.5-ish yards per play is not terrible, but still it didn't seem like the defense could get off the field when we needed to needed them to. There was times they did, but our offense would go back out there three and out and give it back, and then we couldn't get off the field that second time. We would seem to give up touchdowns. Did get after him. We had five sacks. I don't know how much that is our defense and how much of that was – being a young, inexperienced quarterback, he wasn't necessarily uh, reading things right and maybe held on to the ball a little bit too long. Uh, I did uh, do remember at one point he did hold on to it quite for a while, and we got a sack because my phone started blowing up. People totally surprised that we actually had a covered sack 
considering the play of our uh, defensive backfield first few games, that was a big deal. Uh, I didn't notice, so I'm going to say he played better. Chris Jackson seemed to have a better game. He didn't seem to get beat any time that I really remember the whole game, which obviously the first four games – he was beat constantly, and for some reason, it was obvious. Every day, seemed to, that quarterback seemed to know when he had him beat and pick. Maybe that was a case of an inexperienced quarterback not recognizing those times. But uh, that may be true that uh, Fine didn't recognize that uh, opportunity because every other game, it seems as though the coaches and and the quarterbacks have been abundantly aware. Wherever three is on the field, he is a target. Um, Naturally, he'll improve over time. I don't know if he'll improve enough to hold him to his, to his position in the future in terms of who else we got coming in. Right now, he's sort of the last man standing. Trial by fire, drinking from the fire hose, pick your idiom. Um, last game, he didn't seem to be targeted as much. Um, don't know if that is as much a, an improvement on his part as opposed to the other side just not seeing the the opportunity there. Um, that defensive our defensive backfield is uh, creating some some significant issues for us defensively. Um, it's it's really putting a lot of pressure on our offense or our defensive line to get pressure up the uh, on the quarterback and uh, disrupt the the patterns as uh, as quickly as possible. Um, again, there's no there's no real viable solution there. We we are what we are at this point. So having a bunch of young guys in the defensive backfield is just something we're going to have to suffer with, unfortunately, through the rest of the season. Hopefully that'll pay dividends into the future, but obviously no guarantee of that. Uh, another thing, North Texas was, I, will, I believe, 8 of 17 on converting third downs. It seemed it seemed like me like we were one of the worst third down teams. Uh, looking at the stats, we were actually ninety seventh in the country, but uh, that also includes Morgan State went five of nineteen on third down. If you take them out of the mix, I think uh, we've given up more than fifty percent of our third down conversions. We have to do something. We have to get off the field as a defense. I mean, uh, granted our offense is struggling, but the defense has to get off the field, get the ball back to them. A few more three and outs might help that field position. So instead of the offense having to go 80 yards, we maybe can go 60 yards. I'm just at a loss with the defense as well because that, I mean, Chuck Heater, I feel like, is a fantastic coach. I think outside of maybe at the corner spot, we have a lot of talent on defense. It seems like we rotate linebackers in who make play after play, but yet we can't stop teams. That, that's the one weakness behind what Heater is trying to do defensively. You've got to have good corner play. That is our biggest weakness right now, and it is the thing that's kind of causing all the, all the cards to fall in on us. If we had more experienced corners, even if they were physically less talented, if you, um, you know, put uh, Rowe and somebody else over on the corner that you know, got dismissed, chances are we're not struggling as bad. With our inexperience at corners, what do you do if you're a heater? You've got relatively inexperienced linebackers. So 
in obvious passing downs. You turn loose all of your linebackers on a blitz and rush seven, hoping to disrupt the play. You do that once, you maybe catch them by surprise. About the second or third time you try that, you're going to get dump passes right from wherever the linebackers have left, wide open space, and our defensive backs play with their back to the quarterback. I, I hate it. I think it's – I don't know why it's taught that way now. I'm, not, I'm sure there's a reason for it. I hate it because I think it puts uh, defensive backs in really bad positions, makes them unaware of what's going on. So we blitz linebackers trying to disrupt a pass play. They hit us, you know, with a, um, a tight end or maybe even a running back releasing and our defenses, defensive backs are back to the quarterback, well, they've just broken a long gain on us. Then what do you do? Well, you're back to playing how you try to play, and then they burn you that way. Uh, we don't have any answers on either side of the ball right now. And you know, circling back to the, the key word for the day, frustrating. You know, what do we do as a team? What do we, what do we do on both sides of the ball to improve? Honest to goodness, don't know where it's at. It's a lot of inexperience on both sides of the ball. Um, maybe lack of confidence on both sides of the ball. Don't know where they're going to find experience or confidence at this point. Yeah, and going back to not exactly, we don't know exactly what our scheme is, what we're trying to do defensively, but it seems like we play off a fair amount. Corners eight, nine, ten yards off, and teams pick us apart with slants or in routes, you feel like the linebackers, if that's what you're going to do with your corners, that's great. But the linebackers have to drop back and coverage a little bit and take that over the middle throw away. And that forces the defense to have to stay out where you're one-on-one out on an island, looks in its throw instead of we give them the inside release and we're throwing it, they're throwing it right there and the guy's wide open, uh, have a perfect passing lane and everything. Looking at another step, we're giving up 7.3 yards per play. That's good for second worst in the nation. Uh, right ahead of Rice, uh, and and that's kind of been the thing. We don't. I don't feel like we give up huge chunks, uh, other than maybe a DB getting. But it seems like we consistently give up ten yards of play. And it's death by a thousand right. cuts, and that's back to what we were talking about earlier. With when you're punting, when you've got manageable fourth down situations, you're punting, hoping to flip the field. Ugh. They're, they're gashing you. You know, three yards here, four yards there, five yards, first down. A 10-yard play, okay, we got another first down. Back to two, three, five. Wash, rinse, repeat. Next thing you know, it's 13-play drive. They shoot six minutes off the clock. They're punching it in. Your defense is tired. Your offense goes out and is ineffective, three and out. You punt. You do that a couple of times. Your defense is wore out. Your offense has no confidence. Then you finally get a drive going and it stalls and you got fourth and one and you know somewhere around midfield and then you punt again, trying to flip that field again. And, and another thing, you're you're back to, you know, you're you're playing conservative percentages that, as far as I can tell, don't actually exist. <laughs> and, and if you're punting to try to flip the field, you need to get off the field on third down. If we're letting teams convert half of their third downs, they're going to get a couple first downs on us and that field position game's done. Uh, like I said, it just all doesn't add up to me, doesn't add up to you, I'm sure. Some of the decisions we're making about uh, 
those type of game management decisions, I feel like those decisions are fine if you're dominating team. Your defense is dominating and smothering. Your offense has some big playability. I think we don't have either of that, so we need to take kind of shift that philosophy of game management from conservative old school approach to adapt to what we're actually doing right now as a team. And it, uh, we talk about how Leg doesn't seem to adapt his offense. It doesn't seem like Doc adapts the way he manages the game based on how the game's going, how your team's doing, uh, your offensive defensive units, and how they're playing. And I think a good example of that was the pig game. How many fourth and short opportunities did we have in the first half? I, I want to say three, maybe four, but I was thinking three. And we passed on all those opportunities. It took until the second half, and we were down 27 nothing before he finally you know, decided, well, if we're going to get back in the game, here's the time we're going to do it. Well, it did. It, it kind of gave us a little bit of a boost. We converted. We ended up scoring, and then we got on a bit of a roll there. We actually made that game competitive down to the last series, and it makes you wonder, had we at least made some attempts in the first half to do that? One, do we get a score up earlier? Two, do we actually prevent a score? Do you actually get a maybe a 10 to 14 point swing off of that? And instead of you know trying to drive to uh, get a score to get you one one score closer, maybe you're in a position to win the game or even you know God forbid run the clock out because you're ahead. Um, again, you know our natures are we're not conservative. Uh, in in that way, if uh, I've jokingly said, and this is not to disparage Doc in particular, but if there is a conservative playbook out there, I'm fairly certain he at least wrote the foreword to the book if his face is not actually on the book itself. So now that North Texas, in our rear view, uh, leaves us one and four. Except we've got we've got three definitely tough road game or tough conference games left that. Uh, Every every game kind of counts. We want to get bowl eligible, contend in the C, uh, Conference USA East. We have Florida Atlantic coming in this week, and I know they seem to be kind of the surprise pick. Everybody seemed to be expecting a step forward out of them this year. Maybe a few upsets. They're sitting at one and five right now. Um, they lost last week to Charlotte. Charlotte's first Conference USA win. They won on a Hail Mary. To me, that looked like the Florida Atlantic player's foot came down inbounds. We play overturned it. Charlotte won. Uh, they lost the week before to FIU. And that I remember following that game on my phone a little bit and was completely shocked because for a team that was supposed to be the surprise pick in the East, to lose to FAU or FIU was kind of surprising to me. They played Miami and Kansas State uh, and Ball State non-conference and lost those. So, that was kind of understandable that they were coming into conference one and four, but when Florida Atlantic lost to Florida International and then to Charlotte, that's kind of a rough start is an understatement. As, as hamstrung as Marshall is with regard to finances and things of that sort, we still generate, given our demographics, where we sit geographically, we still generate a pretty decent sized fan base. Um, Florida Atlantic, uh, if I recall the numbers correctly, they they have a uh, student population in the mid fifties. 
their enrollment is roughly five times larger than Marshall's. And they probably have maybe access to better resources, but bang for buck, uh, I don't know how they justify continuing playing uh, Division One football. I, I really don't. Um, that said, given how we're playing, it would not surprise me if this is a competitive football game Saturday. I'm hoping it isn't, and I'm hoping it's not competitive because Marshall looks like they're you know kind of finally hitting that corner, getting turned around. But um, it wouldn't surprise me to see a struggle. And the dangerous thing about a Florida Atlantic team, they've got probably 90% of their players are from Florida. And they know most of our Florida players. Once, once they get a little taste of success in a game, I could see the game sort of derailing into you know personalities and getting a little bit chippy. And that's always that's always a scary thing when you've got a team like Florida Atlantic that had some optimism coming in and they're sitting at one and five. Um, you don't want to give them optimism. You want to bury them as quickly as you can. And I don't know if we've got that capability right now. Yeah, the line uh, last time I looked was 12, which considering how bad it appears Florida Atlantic is, is, I mean, fear we're getting four, maybe five for home field because our success at home, uh, other than the Akron game, to say we're a touchdown, maybe eight points better than one of the probably two or three worst teams in FBS this year, kind of. It's a, it's a little disheartening. It is, and that's totally the line I expected. Uh, Sagarin and Massey, their ratings kind of give you that range, probably within two or three points of where Vegas is going to be, barring something crazy. And when I checked that Sunday, it, it was just like, oh, we're only going to be like 11, 12-point favorites against this horrible team at, at home. It's like, this is where we're at now. And like, like you, I hope we come out. I can see us coming out and putting them away early and kind of rolling a little bit. But at the same time, I I think a lot of people would have said that we maybe should have gone to North Texas to do that. North Texas is another team that's trying to build up a program that should be still kind of behind where we're at. It um, is true of winning and losing. It's contagious. And it is actually harder to shake losing than it is to maintain the winning. And that's what that's where my concern is right now in, in large part with, with the team. You know, those guys – are probably athletic enough to be uh, at a better record right now. I think mentally we're a little bit beat up, lacking that confidence. We need to play well. And I I would really have a, at least a, a bit of optimism coming out of this game if it's 60 minutes of just kicking FAU's rear end up and down the field. I don't know if we're capable of doing that. At this point, I think we're certainly capable in a larger sense, but I don't know right now where we said if we're capable of doing that, but it would be, um, I think it would be a, a bit of a boost for both them and the fan base to see them just come out and totally dominate uh, FAU. And, and that's another thing. If we were to get in a lead where you're in that position where maybe you can rest some guys, I know we don't have a bye week, 
but I almost feel like we have to keep that foot all the way down, keep guys playing if they're in that flow instead of maybe pulling them. Uh, but who knows? We might not be in that position or we might play it smart and rest some guys, like I said, considering we don't have that bye week. That, that is, that, if there's any other criticism that I would level at the coaching staff, especially Doc, and this isn't much of a criticism, it's really just a difference in philosophy, but I'm not a, a, a fan of heavy rotation. Unless your ones and your twos are, you know, razor thin in difference, typically your twos are a little bit less than your ones constantly rolling your twos in over your ones and getting them equal playing time. I don't, I don't care for that. We've done that quite a bit with the receiving core. And I think we, I think we actually suffer for that because we've got some guys that physically are capable of being dominant players. McManus physically should be able to dominate most of the defensive backs that he plays against. And how many, how many series does he play in a game? I mean, until Doc showed up, I'd never actually seen a wide receiver rotation that way. It, it, it seemed like most programs that I followed, including Marshall, you played your three or four top receivers 80% of the game. They need to breathe. They'll come out for a play or two, and then you get them. Yeah. And that's something that if your receivers are all pretty equal, I could see, I feel like Clark and McManus are significantly – Better that you can say, okay, these guys are better. We can tell that just by watch. You shouldn't rotate. You shouldn't take them out for guys that might be okay players, but not quite as good. I mean, Michael Clark's had a fantastic year. For a guy that's knocking rust off. I mean, when was the last time he played football? Eighth grade? Seventh grade? Eighth grade or ninth grade, maybe. Uh, Several, and he sat out last year. So I, I just don't understand that rotation when you have two pretty good receivers. I feel like that's something too that receivers get in the flow. They can't get in the flow of the game. They're constant. And Chase, I mean, if you're going out there with new receivers every time, each receiver is different. They're going to run the same routes, but how they respond to a ball or your chemistry with them is going to be different. I, I know uh, when Chad and Byron were here, when they're throwing routes and they're running drills in practice, they do it with the same three or four receivers every time. They build that chemistry in practice. But if you're playing six, seven, eight different receivers, Chase can't take all those reps and the backup's not thrown to anybody. Chase can't throw that many times in practice. Yeah. I feel like that could be part of Chase's problem too is not having that chemistry with the receivers. They're constantly rotating them in. Uh, that's and, a good point, I, I, and I think that's underestimated. I mean, go back to the Chad and Byron examples. I mean, if, if you ever went over and watched those guys practice in the offseason, it was the same three and four guys. It wasn't you know, waves of wide receivers stepping up to the line and running routes. That's just not the way those guys operated. And as a result of that, uh, and that that kind of chemistry pays off when you get into situations like, oh, let's say the 1999 MAC championship game when you've got fourth and six or seven and you need to hit a guy on a quick route for first down to keep your season alive. Well, who did he go to? James Williams. Why? Because for two seasons – that was one of his main guys that he worked with in the offseason. They built up a tremendous rapport and, and chemistry. If we got pushed in that position right now, who who are we depending on? And even in Doc's early years, we rotated receivers, but Tommy wasn't one consistent, and Cato had that 
Chemistry, chemistry with yeah. him and trusted him anytime we needed a third and three, third and six. Tried to convert a fourth down. It was going to Tommy, and they had that. They just knew what each other was doing, even though we were rotating the rest of the receivers. I think Chase kind of has a connection with Michael Clark, but it's not quite developed to that point yet. And, again, he's a little different receiver than Tommy. He's a guy that third and three, third and four, he's not that polished route runner that Tommy was right now. His strength is his size and speed going downfield and going up to the ball, and that's a low percentage throw that you – I think teams probably run too much on third and fourth and short, but it's just another thing that could be possible. Like I said, there's just something off about our offense. Chase has the physical tools. I think he's got the mental skills to be an elite quarterback at the college level too. It's just he just needs it to come together for him. There's things I think our coaches could do to help him that they're maybe not doing or who knows. It's just there's something missing like we talked about earlier in the show. All right. Thanks for joining us. Like I said, game Saturday, 7, homecoming. Uh, hopefully the weather ends up cooperating. Maybe it'll just rain in the morning. You can come tailgate, have a good time all afternoon and evening. It'll be beautiful kickoff. Uh, you can check us out on Twitter at The Talking Herd, or you can check us out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash The Talking Herd. And, of course, you can find us on iTunes. Just search in the podcast for The Talking Herd. Uh, you can subscribe to us so you get automatic updates when we post a new podcast. Uh, and then that's all we have for today thanks everybody